Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. this morning but do you remember in the Marjorie the name of that high school high school in Florida I'll get it one second Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Do you remember that the that guy was on everybody's watch list? And the police had gone to that home 40-something times. Yet that guy still somehow or other uh, gets his hands on a weapon and goes and kills a bunch of people. Um, there was tips to the FBI. 
FBI didn't connect the dots, which they're the dot connecting organization domestically, right? They don't because evidently their tip line was fucked up. Mm -hmm. And so there are crazy people amongst us and there's no, I don't know, there's no way to sugarcoat it. They are crazy. The dropped on your head at birth crew. And, um, but we have warning signs. He goes and gets interviewed, right? He's written, he said, made comments that he's going to, you know, kill everybody at high school or whatever the comments that he made that, that got the attention in the first place. And then you go, you get, to, you go buy an assault rifle that doesn't flag you for greater scrutiny. We're not saying no, but before anybody sells him an assault rifle, Right, we need to go interview him again. Okay, I, I I don't know how it works, but man, if you can prevent this shit, when people are screaming that they're going to do this, then I don't know I don't know what to say. Then everybody should carry a firearm. Right, everybody should carry a firearm. So, I mean, God. God help the people and their families that, that have gone through this. There was an incident here pff, less than 10 miles from my house. Asian dude with two two pistols. I don't know if they were, were revolvers or pistols or he goes into a church yesterday during a luncheon for somebody's retirement and he starts shooting people, kills one, wounds five. And then while he was attempting to reload, one of the former retired pastor hits him in the ch head with a chair. And then the... You know, the rest of the elderly people at the luncheon tie him up with an extension cord. Um, I mean, it sucks. But I, I guess what I don't understand is that these people that are blinking red, they continue to have the unfettered right. Is somebody going to tell me it's called due process, Mac, until you're convicted? Nobody can take away your rights? What about your... What about when you're threatening people like that? Do you still have the right to walk in and buy a, farm, a firearm without further scrutiny? Hmm. I don't know. And again, you know, I, I, um, you know, I've lived not only here in California, um, but I lived in North Dakota, where you know people get born with a shotgun and a fishing rod in each hand and i see the way they go about you know you live up in north dakota nobody's getting shot okay and the reason people say nobody's getting shot is because everybody got a gun and they say you know an armed society is truly a polite society but i don't think that's the case you know, it's it's uh, mostly small town America up there. The values are different, and um, the way they own guns—it's not guns on demand. They buy guns is a serious thing. You know, they, you know, there's a reason they go purchase a firearm and and whatnot. So this whole idea of guns on demand—I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. Um, and especially if I mean. This, so this interview that, that he's done after he's threatened people, somehow that doesn't make it into anybody's database. 
I don't know. I don't know. It's just that you look at the ones that you think might be preventable and you say, okay, we can't prevent that one. You know, is there anything we can prevent? Answer, okay. If the answer is no, then okay, then everybody can carry. Okay, got my phone, got my car keys, got my sunglasses, got my pistol. Let's go. So, anyway, um, that's that. Um, I want to talk about, I want you to bust out a map of Russia. Okay, so I'll give you a second to do that. You can crank it out on, for those of you that have the app, Google Earth. Uh, open it up. Um, and then dial it into... The first thing I want to say is um, when when the mood hits me, I look up Angela Merkel. And, um, you know, she and Barack Obama, you know, great globalization advocates, all based on the on the premise that, you know, this whole this whole notion by people that Vladimir Putin is somehow or other a threat and China would somehow or other act in a menacing fashion towards its neighbors, you know, it's just, it's American conservative bullshit, right? Um, Angela, Angela Merkel doesn't make too many public appearances anymore, just so you know, in case you're looking. <clears throat> um, and so... Um, I said this last week. Uh, I think I say it again during. Uh, w let me just tell you what we'll do today. Uh, Will did not get a chance to participate in the dis discussion on Friday, so um, uh, I recorded his comments yesterday, and you'll hear Will today. Will Costantini. So, um, but I've been. I've been. It's been very interesting. And my comment last week was this. I'm not exactly sure what the classified assessment is of the war in Ukraine. But whatever it is, it's way worse than the public understands in terms of Russia's position. And so... Why do you say that, Mac? Um, I say that because the way that arms are being funneled into Ukraine by everybody that has has arms is is just is blatant in the face of Russia. Here you go. Here you go. We're sending this. We're sending this. We're sending this. We're sending this. Okay. Russia evidently helpless to counter that. Okay, so... However poorly it's gone so far, this whole idea that somehow or other Russia at some point is going to get its act together militarily, I don't know that I see that in my crystal ball. Um, I, there was an article about even how domestic Russian bloggers who are pro the fight are now turning on the military and well, mostly the military, and saying, what the fuck is going on? And it has to do, uh, a lot of it, 
I wish I could find it. I know I won't be able to, so I won't waste your time. But the bloggers said essentially, I haven't said anything for a long time as I've watched this incompetence. Poor morale, horrible training, no night vision equipments, no drones. As Russian forces take it on a, on the chin in Ukraine. But the cherry on top that precipitated uh, these Russian bloggers was evidently the better part, or at least a couple battalions in a brigade got smoked at a river crossing. Now, let me just tell you how a river crossing normally gets executed. You obviously control the near side. You don't control the far side. And so you're going to have to make a river crossing right in contact with the enemy. So what you have to do is you have to dominate the far side by fire. Okay, you have to dominate the far side by fire, and um, and you do that. You you smoke everything that moves. You don't mass the vehicles before you go. You 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 collect them out of range of the bad guys. Once you leave that assembly area, you're moving, and and the intent is we are not stopping until we cross that bridge and move tactically on the far side. And what happened was the Russians they massed their armor on the near side. The Ukrainians saw it and annihilated it. It's I mean just I you know militarily you look at it and you're like what the fuck were they doing? I mean all you're doing is you're offering a target you know, to somebody who has drones, who has precision-guided music, munitions, right? And they used them. So anyway, um, so, so, so that was the event that precipitated these bloggers saying, this is not going well for us. Now, these are domestic Russian bloggers. Okay, so anyway, that got, that got people's attention. So the article I saw is in the New York Times today, written by, I think, their Paris bureau chief. And he's doing analysis. Um, he's doing analysis of, uh, of the events and uh, that have caused Sweden and Finland to say, we will apply to be part of NATO. Now, think about that. Finland right on Russia's border. I, I think their, their uh, border with Russia is between 800 and 900 miles of border. Yeah, how about that for uncomfortable, moderately. And so, um, so now the Russians are so on their ass that the Finns who considered Russia, um, how would I articulate this? Not a friend, but not crazy either. And so that you could deal with them have now changed their mind. Think about that. And that Sweden, right, long in the same boat, has done the same thing. I mean, that's 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 
post-World War II historical shit. So let me read you a little bit about, um, and the guy who writes it is named Roger Cohen. I'll give you Roger Cohen's background. Roger Cohen is the Paris bureau chief of the New York Times. He was a columnist from twenty from 2009 to 2020. He has worked for the Times for more than 30 years and has served as a foreign correspondent and a foreign editor. He was raised in South Africa and Britain. He's a naturalized United States citizen. All right. So here's here's what he has to say. And and I, I just again um, historic times when that we live in in which um, if you can imagine NATO becomes a powerful organization. Did Mac? Did you just say NATO? I think I did. Right. I think I did. The decisions by Finland and Sweden to abandon the neutrality they have adhered to for decades and apply to join NATO is the strongest indication yet of a profound change in Europe in the face of an aggressive Russian imperial project. The two Scandinavian states have in effect made clear that they, will ex that they expect the threat from President Vladimir Putin's Russia to be enduring and they will not be cowed by it. And that's the important part. They will not be cowed by it. And that bears a little bit of, you know, discussion, which he does. And that's why I'm, I'm presenting it to you. And that after the Russian butchery in Bukha, Ukraine, there is no room for bystanders. Theirs is a declaration of Western resolve. I mean, what exactly? Quote, military non-alignment has served Sweden well, but our conclusion is that it won't serve us equally well in the future, Sweden's Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson said on Sunday. Quote, this is not a decision to be taken lightly. Because the Finnish and the Swedish militaries are already well integrated with NATO, one reason the application process may go quickly, the immediate impact of the country's change of strategic course in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be less practical than political. Okay. Normally you hear, hear that said the other way around. In this case, not so much. So already somewhat familiar with each other's technology and the way they work, right? that this will be more of a political event than a, than a hardware, communication, all the different things you have to do to align. All right, so a point. This is a new Europe in which there is no, no more in-between space. Countries are either protected by NATO or they are on their own against a Russia ruled by a man determined to assert Russia's place in the world stage through force. For Sweden, and especially for Finland, and this is why the map's important, Okay, so if you pull your map out, on the northwestern corner of Russia, you will see the Russian-Finnish border. And I can measure it here because I love Google Earth, okay, just so you know. Mm -hmm. If I had this as, as a kid, I would have learned so much more about history. Let's see, where am I? All right. 
725 miles, according to McNamara, right here. Mm-hmm. And hold on, it's actually longer than that. I think because it wraps around. But anyway, I won't go into that. So let's just say approximately 800 miles. This is a new Europe in which there is no more in-between space. Countries are either protected by NATO, blah, 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 blah. For Sweden, especially for Finland, with its 810-mile border with Russia, Mr. Putin's decision to invade a neighbor could not be ignored. They were not alone. Germany, a generally pacifist nation since it emerged from the rubble of World War II, has embarked on a massive investment in its own in its own armed forces, as well as an attempt to wean itself off dependence on energy from Russia. It has judged as, if not innocuous, at least a, it had just. I'm sorry. It had judged as, if not innocuous. What does innocuous exactly mean? Harmless, inoffensive, bland, innocent, safe. That's Ms. Merkel, by the way. At least a reliable business partner. Quote, NATO enlargement has never, was never a cause of Mr. Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, but it is certainly a consequence of it, says Natalie Tochi, the director of the Institute for International Affairs in Rome. Quote, Sweden and Finland now see a Russia that is a revisionist in the way that it sees history that is much more dangerous than during the latter part of the Cold War. Sweden and Finland judged neutrality to be in their interest when they faced the Soviet threat, and in the Swedish case, for centuries before that. They did not alter course, although they did join the European Union in, in the more than three decades since the end of the Cold War. The shift of sentiment in the two countries in the past several months has been dramatic. One measure of how Mr. Putin's determination to push NATO back and weaken support for it has produced the opposite effect. The rebirth of an alliance that has been casting around for a generation for a convincing reason to exist. I mean, think about that. I mean, it's stunning, right? The transformation of NATO into something and, you know, to watch it. You know, and, and again, I, I, you know, we talk about these things on a regular basis, but, you know, the surest way to assure the peace is through strength. And what happens when you're weak is people miscalculate. The article goes on. We're no more, we're no more than a quarter of the population in Sweden and Finland supported joining NATO last year. The number has risen sharply today hitting 76% in a recent poll in Finland. Imagine that. A year ago, 25% supported joining NATO in Finland. So you would assume the, right, the, um, the conservative part of Finland. Now it's 76%. Sweden's governing Social Democratic Party, the country's largest party, and long a bastion of non-alignment has embraced NATO membership in an extraordinary turnabout. Quote, Putin climbed into a tree and does not know how to get down, says Nicole Bacheron, a French foreign policy analyst. Now he will face a NATO that is stronger and bigger and more determined. 
Article 3 of NATO's founding treaty says that members must maintain and develop their individual and collective capacity to resist armed attack through continuous and effective self-help and mutual aid. In the case of Sweden and Finland, these capacities have already been extensively developed through close cooperation with NATO. Asked if Sweden feared retaliation from Russia, Mr. Bilt, who was introduced at a different point in the article that I skipped over, said, you never know with Russia, but the mood here is confident. The assessment that the Ukraine war may well be a long one is now widely held in Europe. Mr. Putin did not only take on a neighbor, he took on the West and an American portrayed as an empire of lies. It took about 20 years from the Versailles Treaty of 1919 for Germany to respond to perceived humiliations by sending the Third Reich's war machine across its neighbor's border, igniting World War II. It took 30 years for Mr. Putin's brooding resentment over the perceived humiliation of the breakup of the Soviet empire to lead to a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And just so you know, you're seeing that, that comparison more and more, Putin to Hitler. But by, not by bloggers, by no-shit writers. The, Rus the Russian president seems unlikely to reverse course, even if his war has gone badly up to now. In practice, both Finland and Sweden have lived for a long time with Russian nuclear weapons nearby. The Russian enclave of Kaliningrad is sandwiched between Poland and Lithuania on the Baltic coast. These countries are used to Russian violations of their airspace. They know the risks they are taking, Ms. Tochi said, but the security gains with NATO are incomparably higher than any added risk. Ms. Tochi spoke during a visit to Estonia, one of the three Baltic states formerly part of the Soviet Union that joined NATO in 2004. Quote, there is a general delight here that the Baltic Sea will now be a NATO sea. Matt, think about that. The Baltic Sea now belongs to NATO. And to the Estonians, the Finnish, and the Swedish decisions, the people here feel like they have been vindicated. For a long time, even up to the eve of the Russian invasion, Europe has been divided. Countries close to the Russian border, like the Baltic states and Poland, took a Russia threat seriously from bitter historical experience, while countries further west, including Germany and France, were more intent on enjoying the peace dividend of the Cold War's end than looking Mr. Putin's ambition in the eye. And let me go to his, let me go to the last part of the article. Finland and Sweden learned one core lesson from Ukraine. After the NATO announcement in 2008 that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, a decision taken with scant consideration of how or when to achieve the objective, the thorny issue of Ukraine's membership was left floating by Western leaders who did not want to provoke Mr. Putin further. This made no difference to Mr. Putin's calculus. He invaded Ukraine just the same, inventing a Nazi threat and arguing that Ukrainian statehood was a myth. Sweden and Finland were not going to suffer the same fate through misguided restraint. 
They learned a lesson, Ms. Tochi said. The question remains of how Mr. Putin will get down from his tree. He called the Finnish decision a mistake and insisted there was no Russian threat to the country. He also cut off Russian supplies of electricity to Finland. There is no sign of his abandoning his conviction that force will eventually deliver Russia's strategic aims. Quote, even if Putin realizes he's made a mistake, I doubt he will ever admit it, Mr. Bilt said. The consequences would be too momentous. This was not a small mistake. This was a catastrophic strategic error of the first order. So um, I thought it was very interesting. You hear things that you've never heard in your lifetime, that the Baltic Sea is now a NATO sea. <laughs> like, whoa, right? On all sides, bordered by Sweden, Finland, NATO, NATO now, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Lithuania, um, amazing stuff. But you're seeing more and more of this commentary being written, and I thought it was, I, I, I thought it was extremely interesting. Also, um, you're seeing large counterattacks in the vicinity of Kharkiv driving Russia, Rus the Russian army, back to the river. And I read a thing in the New York Times yesterday with uh, frontline battalion commanders and their troops talking about, yeah, we think they're redeploying across the river because although we're being shot at on occasion, it is not like they have their artillery in position anymore and are ranging us regularly. Whatever is ranging us is a relatively small unit, which leads us to believe that they are withdrawing because that's the way it happens. Interesting. So does Vladimir Putin survive all this? Interesting question. So anyway, I thought, I thought that was interesting uh, this morning. So good morning to you on a Monday. The United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Will Cosentini going to join me here in a few minutes. Good morning to you. <laughs> And again, uh, this is dedicated to the Ukrainian military. Um, 
I mean, you read a story like that and what inspired all these different nations, and that is um, the courage of the Ukrainian military. And then the other thing they saw is backed up by NATO hardware in this case and probably other stuff that Russia's taken on I mean Ukraine has taken on Russia and oh by the way they're winning and oh by the way they're winning so um yeah I mean I've done this before but that kind of courage is uh, is inspiring and inspiring the West to be something again, inspiring NATO to be something again. And I think inspiring free people around the world to stand up and say, you know what? Again, this whole idea of peace through strength. I mean, if you look at what Grant Newsom says about what former Japanese Prime Minister Abe says now on a regular basis, you know, hey, Japan's got to arm itself. Japan's got to be strong. And so, I don't know, maybe, maybe. So uh, this is dedicated, dedicated to the Ukrainian military. Good luck and happy hunting, boys and girls. you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well i'm very confident that thank you very much if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds and win. You got to win.
time to check the weather. So we'll do that real quick. <clears throat> and then a very quick glance at the headlines, and then you'll hear Will. Uh, currently in Triangle, it is Triangle. In Quantico, Virginia, it is cloudy in 69 already. Down the coast in North Carolina, in the vicinity of 2nd Marine Air Wing, it is mostly sunny in 81. 29 Palms reports sunny in 80. Camp Pendleton reports clouds in 61. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark, cloudy, and Dark cloudy and 72. Okinawa dark cloudy and 64. Currently at the home of All Marine Radio here in the Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area of Southern California, where the weather is much to my liking. It is cloudy and 62 degrees. Looking for high of 71 today. Going to be mild all week. 71 today, 68 tomorrow. Wednesday, 70. Thursday, 71. Friday, 71. I, I could live a time. Yeah. You know what? Um, I don't like warm nights. I don't like warm days because now I don't want to run my air conditioner anymore because it's too expensive. I mean, good God. It's ridiculous, right? You look at your heating bill, you're like, holy shit. So I told Colleen, get a blanket. But when it's hot, man, sucks. Just sucks. Yeah, so you got to lay there and sweat your ass off. You got to do deployment sleeping, which sucks. And there you don't have a choice now. It's like, do I really want to do it like this? And the answer is no, I don't. So, um, anyway, let me do the headlines real quick. And uh, and then you'll hear, as I said, as then you're, then I can say it. You can hear Will. Top story in Stars and Stripes is reversing Trump. Biden acts to deploy U.S. troops to Somalia. Uh, so evidently in the earlier part of May, President Biden signed a executive order that <clears throat> reestablishes the American military presidents in, presence in Somalia. And, um, and those special operation forces were, uh, will be able to support the fight against the terrorist organization Al-Shabaab with, quote, in strength, strength and pur purpose as that threat has become heightened. So that top headline this morning. Um. Small winds buoy Ukraine. West says Russians losing momentum.
There's another article in Ukraine and internationally, scenario darkens for Russia. So you're seeing this more and more and more. This is written by a Al- Alexander, O-L-E-K, as opposed to Alec, Alexander Stashevsky, Ciaran McQuillan, and it's an associated piece written, dated today. Oh, I'll read you the opening and closing. Europe pushed to toughen its response Monday to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with Sweden joining fi- Finland in deciding to seek NATO membership and European Union officials working to rescue proposed sanctions against Russian oil. On the ground, Russian troops resisted attempts, attempted Russian advances. I'm sorry, Ukrainian troops resisted attempted Russian advances and even rolled back the front lines in places. Over the past few days, Moscow's forces pulled back from around the northeastern city of Kharkiv after bombarding it for weeks. Also Monday, a glimmer of hope emerged for wounded Ukrainian troops trapped in the bomb remains of a giant steel plant, the last stronghold of resistance in the port city of Maripol. The Russian Defense Ministry announced an agreement for the wounded to leave the steelworks for treatment in a town held by pro-Moscow separatists. There was no immediate confirmation from the Ukrainian side and there was no word whether the wounded would be considered prisoners of war, nor was it cleared how many fighters might be evacuated. As fighting raged in eastern Ukraine, the international response to Russia's attack continued to pick up pace. And then they talk about Sweden and uh, Finland. And then the last uh, two paragraphs. In the Luhansk region of Donbass, strikes overnight hit a hospital killing two, wounding nine, including a child, the regional military command said. Overnight strikes also hit other towns. Regional military governor Sirhi Hadai said Ukrainian special forces blew up a Russian-held railway bridge to try to slow Russian advances. Along another section of the front with Russia, Ukrainian border guards said they defeated a Russian attempt Monday morning to send sabotage and reconnaissance troops into the northern Sume region. So, interesting stuff. Uh, Top story in the Wall Street Journal this morning is U.S. surpasses 1 million COVID-19 deaths. Next headline, China's economic distress deepens as lockdowns go on. Next headline, McDonald's to exit from Russia after three decades, selling their business. Next headline, Ukraine's military regains ground in the Northeast. Um, top story in New York Times is accused gunmen in Buffalo plan to attack a second target. Top story in the Washington Post is Victims' names released. Suspect allegedly made a school threat. Next story is what we know about the victims.
You know, um, I would make this commentary, this comment about all of this. Um, as soon as things like this happen, you see people try to advance political agendas with this, be they gun control, be they a racial narrative in this country that doesn't exist. And I would tell you this, um, these people have mental illnesses. Why they take the form of racism, I'm not exactly sure. But what you see is trying to paint the country as a racist country. It's not. It's not. The fact that sick people do sick shit is in itself sick. But what you see now is this competing narrative constantly that leverages any event to their advantage. I guess we should expect nothing else, but it's just kind of disgusting if you want if you want another truth. But I guess that is the way it is. Chinese Navy ship operating off of Australia is not pleasing the Australian government. It's a signals intelligence ship. Yeah, it's been there for about, I don't know, a week to two. The Navy's cancellation of the littoral combat ship ASW, anti-submarine warfare, mission package triggers the Nunn-McCurdy breach. This was told to lawmakers on Friday. In a statement, the Navy told Congress today that the LCS mission module program now exceeds the original baseline estimates by at least 30% and the current baseline by at least 15%, breaching the Nunn-McCurdy significant cost growth threshold. The breach comes after the Navy, in its fiscal year 2023 budget proposal, decided to eliminate the anti-submarine warfare package from the LCS mission module program, instead opting to focus on the ASW capability of the Constellation class frigate program. Unbelievable. As part of the fiscal year 2023 budget proposal, the Navy also announced plans to decommission all of the Freedom Class LCS littoral combat ships currently in service. This is about opportunity cost. ASW mission that went away, roughly $50 million a year support cost for these vessels and an opportunity to reinvest $1.8 billion when this anti-submarine warfare mission sets going to be taken up by the frigate of which we're buying the fourth of the line in this budget request. It speaks to a return on investment to get at the lethality we need for our near-peer competitor. Navy can't get out of his own way. Again, I believe it should be in receivership. Top story in Marine Corps Times is same story that was there on Friday. So they have it. Um, Ukraine war has the Marine Corps revamping IED training. So that that Marine Corps Times, 
Uh, top five stories in early bird number one troops sent to bolster NATO begin turnover as U.S. moles larger footprint in Europe. The Pentagon is deploying 10,500 troop, troops in the coming months to replace military units that were rapidly deployed to Europe to bolster NATO's eastern edge after Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Um, and then the story goes on to um, articulate how a larger, more permanent, yet rotating force would lay down in Europe. Next story, Air Force Special Operator awarded the Silver Star for saving four comrades under fire in a 2017 raid. Congratulations to him or her. Ukraine war has the Marine Corps revamping ID training. Next story, the Navy doesn't want nukes on ships despite the interest of some combatant commanders. They used to be, I know, because... I guarded the spaces that nuclear weapons would have been contained in. I can neither confirm nor deny the fact that they were actually on the USS Ranger. But I can tell you that I guarded the spaces that they would have been housed in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and it was routine, right? When you went on deployment, ships normally, you know, were loaded out with nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons. Now, I can neither confirm nor deny that they were ever loaded on the Ranger, but I can tell you it was a matter of routine, United States Navy policy, that those ships, when they deployed, yeah. Um, new social media electronic policies likely on the way for Marines. Well, that'll be, that'll be awesome, right? That'll be awesome. Uh, headlines from the Ukraine war, Russia takes losses in failed river crossings. That's been much documented. Uh, next headline, growing evidence of a military disaster on the Donets pierced two pierces a pro-Russian bubble. This may be the story Um this may be the story, this river crossing story. Let me just see. Oh, this is the story. It's called Growing Evidence of a Military Disaster on the Donets Pierces a Pro-Russian Bubble. And so this discusses, discusses pro-Russian bloggers. This is Yuri Politaika. I've been keeping quiet for a long time. He has 2.1 million followers on Telegram. Posted a video on Friday saying that he had avoided criticizing the Russian military until now. Quote, the last straw that overwhelmed my patience was the events around below, this is the river crossing, where due to stupidity, I emphasize because of the stupidity of the Russian command, at least one battalion tactical group was burned, possibly two. He then goes on to ridicule the Kremlin line that the war was going, quote, according to plan. He told his viewers in a five-minute video that, in fact, the Russian army was short of functional unmanned drones, night vision equipment, and other kit that is catastrophically lacking at the front. Yes, I understand that it is impossible for there to be no problems in a war, he says, 
But when the same problems go on for three months and nothing seems to be changing, then I personally, and in fact, millions of citizens of the Russian Federation start to have questions for these leaders of the military operations. Another popular blogger who goes by Starshay Eddy on Telegram wrote that the fact that the commanders left so much of their force exposed amounted to not idiocy, but direct sabotage. And a third, Vlad Aden Tartarsky posted that Russia's eastern offensive was moving slowly, not just because of a lack of surveillance drones, but also these generals and their tactics. Quote, until we get the last name of the military genius who laid down a brigade tank group by the river, and he answers for it publicly, we won't have we won't have had any military reforms. So anyway, yeah, interesting. Ukraine is now the top recipient of U.S. military aid. Here's how it surpassed Europe and, I mean, I'm sorry, Egypt and Israel. Uh, Ukraine says it's repelled Russian incursions in the Sumy region. Talked about that already. Troops defending Kharkov reached the Russian border, according to Ukraine. All right. So that is a look at your weather. And so now, without further ado, Will is uh, coming on. And we talked, uh, he did not get to participate on Friday, which, because um, he had stuff going on. And uh, but I wanted to hear his thoughts. Will a uh, um, obviously a, a smart guy and a deep thinker. So uh, this, without further ado, is Will Costantini, Colonel, United States Marine Corps, retired. On uh, and, and again, I we start talking about Russia, and and I would tell you that you know most of us are not Russian experts. Jeff probably read more about Russia than any of us. Uh, but you know we spent our life focused on you know, deploying to, you know, the Pacific uh, initially in our early careers and then the Middle East uh, in the latter part of our careers. And Russia was this thing that we kind of watched, but not with any nuanced information. Now that the events you see that are shaking Europe, and again, you know, what does the world look like now? NATO, large and in charge of Europe. Germany now, you know, again, now, statements don't make reality. I know that. But you're hearing statements coming out of Germany and Japan. And, and again, the only way to assure the peace is through strength. What does Russia look like on the back side of this? A failed state? Oh, a weaker state than it was? The other question is, how does Western intelligence consistently get this wrong? So, all right, without further ado, my friend, Will. He was indisposed on Friday, and I think the discussion is significant enough um, that I wanted, I reached out to Will and said, Will, um, why does why don't we record something over the weekend about your thoughts on the interview that Representative Luria did with Ward Carroll? 
<clears throat> because Will, um, he, like they, is a Naval Academy graduate. And uh, so Ward very overt in his representation of that. I'm not sure if you noticed that, Will. Um, uh, noted. No, that you didn't notice that? No, I noted it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, but I will say this, Ward, Ward uh, obviously pays attention, and it is an interview worthy of the Naval Academy. So let me say that. Um, uh, first of all, uh, where are you today? You've been a busy guy. I am home in the suburbs of Kansas City. All right, give us a little bit of up an update since the last time we spoke to you. You, you're there was a marriage in your family, and you've been doing a little bit of traveling. So give us a little update. Yeah, I went to uh, Philadelphia, and my son got married on Sunday, on Mother's Day. It was uh, it was a great weekend. Friday, I had uh, dinner with uh, my former XO and first LAR, Mike Bodkin, who happens to live on a farm in Bucks County. Uh, Pennsylvania and uh, so that was really nice and seen him in a couple of years and then Saturday I hosted a rehearsal dinner and met uh, the parents of the bride and uh, had, you, also... had you never met them before no I had not I, I mean I I've been around her I don't know half a dozen times maybe right. more right. going to the Army Navy game etc but I never met her parents and they were it was a nice uh, local Greek restaurant, bring your own beer in downtown Philly. It so <laughs> was, I mean, very authentic. It was really good. And, uh, and then Sunday we had a, we had the ceremony and the reception uh, at a place called the, I think it's called the Penn Rin Estate. I think the original building was built in like 1744. And now there's a couple of, pretty decent sized buildings. The one we were in, um, had a big reception area and then a big ballroom and it's right on the Delaware river. So, uh, it was nice, really nice family affair. Not too big, maybe 75, 80 people total. Um, but really good. Yeah. And, uh, got home on Monday after, of course, being delayed in Chicago Midway for four hours for some unknown reason. Um, but, yeah, that's did what you, I had last weekend. Did you heed my warning and go see the Midway uh, dedication exhibit? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen it a few times. Yeah. All right. Just wondering. Just wondering. Yeah. All right. All right. And uh, what's next on the horizon? You're, you're, you, you told me that you're going to take a trip a month. What's Where's the next trip scheduled to? The next one, I'm going to um, Colorado in June. I'm going to an Orvis fly fishing school. Okay, and so for those of you who don't know Orvis, um, if, if, if you're serious about fly fishing, you know Orvis. Or if you like outdoor clothing, you like Orvis, or if you like really high quality shit, you like Orvis. So if you've never heard of Orvis, don't worry about it. We're not talking to you. Yeah, so. <laughs> they have these, you know, they sponsor these schools all over the country. And it's, uh, I think it's in a place called Beaver Creek. So it's hour or so west of Denver, maybe a little bit more. 
And oh. uh, it's two days, Saturday, Sunday. I personally have never touched a fly rod. Really? But it, it is the only type of fishing that I think is worthy of somebody's effort. Because let me just tell you, I don't know who thought this is a sport. We're going to sit still all day and we're going to drop some food on a hook in the water and we're going to compete with a fish. And I don't know who thought that up, but I will say this. Whoever thought it up, their IQ could not have been very high. Okay. Now, I, I don't like to damn just complete groups of people, but I don't Since know. Since when? Since <laughs> when? I don't know how I get around that one. I try to get up my exacto knife out on that one, but there really is no way to exacto that one. Um, yeah, I think if you're if you love fishing, you pr you might be intellectually deficient. All right, See, but that's, that's okay. I don't know if I actually like to fish, but I know I like the Mountain West. Well, let me just tell you, fly fishing is the exception to all of that. Okay, so to sit in a boat, right, to get your ass chewed off by mosquitoes on a summer afternoon is not my idea of a good time. Now, if it's yours, so be it. I don't begrudge you of that. I just think that there's an intellectual threshold that you probably don't cross that makes that appealing to you. Nonetheless, fly fishing, though, right, to get out there in a stream, to be doing all that stuff, to me, is a worthy endeavor. So I have that to say about that. All right. Yeah, I'm going to, like, for me, it's really an excuse to go out to the mountains. Yeah. And then... Because uh, when you say west of Denver... That's what yeah. you'd be talking about. Yeah, you only got about 10 feet west of Denver, and you're in the mountains. <laughs> and, though, by the way, there's still a bunch of snow up there. I just flew over yeah. the other day. Yeah, so I'm doing that in June, first week in June. Wow. Yeah, looking yeah that'll, that sounds awesome. Yeah, you know, do the, or, Does Orvis supply? I would imagine they probably supply some pretty sweet gear for you to use while you're up there. I, I mean, you show up, and I think it's – Everything is there. And, uh, you know, when you read the reviews on this particular school, um, it's a bunch of people posting, you know, never touched a fly rod before. These guys were the greatest, super patient. Um, you know, one guy's wife puts the thing on that she wasn't going to do it and then showed up and just had a great time. And, for you know, like I said, for me, it, it's just to uh, get out see the mountains, uh, different part of the country. And then I found I've, I've always liked the first time I was ever really in the mountain West was I went to Bridgeport as a Lieutenant. And I found even though where I grew up is just a really beautiful part of the country. I also, I do like that mountain West, the clarity of the air and the view and everything like that. Spectacular. So, yeah. Spectacular. When, when you, when you travel the Western part of the state, you pretty much conclude that the eastern part of, I mean, of the oh. nation, the eastern part sucks ass. Well, I mean, seriously, yeah, I, if you I, like I looking at a tree, a maple tree or some bullshit, that's good. But if you like breathtaking things, it's the West. Okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, where I grew up, the vistas are really something because of the way the lakes cut through. There's terrain and there's water and there's trees and there's, uh, you know, there's all of that. Um, but you know, you get into the middle of the country. I mean, I've, I've told people around here that Kansas really got hit with the ugly stick. Oh my God. There's no scenery here. And I live in the most scenic part of Kansas. We've actually got a little bit of terrain, but I'll get about, I'll get out. 
a little bit past Topeka, and then it's cornfields, some wheat fields, until you get almost all the way to Denver. Uh, Eastern Colorado is as bad as anywhere on earth for scenery. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, part of the Great Plain. Yeah, that, absolutely. It runs up into Saskatchewan and Manitoba. I mean, that thing is massive. And uh, and if you're looking for something interesting, you're not going to find it. But if you continue west, you will find the Badlands. You will find Montana. You will find Colorado, Western Colorado, the Rocky Mountains, New Mexico's plateaus, and the spectacular beauty of the yeah. nation. Spectacular yep. beauty of the nation. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, so anyway. yeah, I'm looking forward to that. All right, let's talk about uh, let's talk about an interview that that the three of us talked about. First of all, I you didn't read the article, uh, but I want to talk about Russia first because we did. Um, all right. Very in, the article is very interesting because he he makes a couple points. While Russia has been a great power in history, it is one of the weaker great powers in history, if not the weakest great power in history, consistently. And it's constantly confined by its economic system, a political system that doesn't deal in reality, deals with whatever pleases the ruler. And you're seeing another iteration of this. And uh, its geography. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm actually, it's funny. I'm reading a book on Peter the Great. So, this guy, Robert Massey, I think he's probably best known to military people. He, he wrote about um, the arms race between the Germans and the British before World War One and building dreadnoughts. And then I, I read a biography of Catherine the Great that he wrote, and I'm reading one on Peter the Great. And this is, I, I think his point is that this is when. Peter sort of dragged Russia into the modern world, and his focus was on building a navy and then finding a way to get that navy out to the water. Um, and you see how they're just constricted by their geography. That if your inability to engage the world on water, you, you really can't engage the world. So really interesting. And and so anyway he talks about um so let me ask I'll, I'll just ask you a question do you think do you think vladimir putin survives all of this and and here's why here's why i say this um i don't know what the classified intelligence assessment is and and but whatever it is it has the west completely unafraid i would dare say with impunity sending arms to ukraine it even has finland and sweden now saying fuck off, we will join NATO. So I don't know what the classified intelligence assessment is, okay? But but whatever it is, it has people that have historically walked, treaded very lightly near Russia and before that, the Soviet Union, right, stomping on them. And so I don't know what that is. Um, you have a uh, a Russian, I want to say intelligence general, saying that there is a coup currently underway that cannot and will not be stopped. Kind of interesting. Um, and so when you look at now, counterattacks are clearing the area north, northeast, and now to the east of Kharkov, right? So um, how do you see this and... Um, do you see Putin surviving this? Yeah, I mean, on the political side, he he really appears to be in trouble. So if the if the reason for this attack was some sort of internal 
Russian political dynamic that, that I, you know, I don't know Russian politics, but it, it seems that that is what was driving it. So it hasn't been successful. So that group has not been bolstered. And I got a sense that a big majority of the Russians are just trying to get by. So now it's starting to impact on them. Um, how, how do they, how do they voice their political displeasure? Um, it's probably not at the ballot box. Is there a critical mass of people that are just not going to follow his orders anymore and take it into their own hands? So that's on the political side. And then him personally, um, I, I saw an article, I don't know, somewhere that says he's got some sort of cancer. I don't know what that means or doesn't mean. But I got to tell you, I saw a picture of him that's very recent, and he does not look well. Um you know, the picture I saw, and, and I don't think it was doctored, showed him like his his face is swollen. Um, it just didn't look right. And that could be, well, maybe the guy's really sick. That could be high stress from the last three months manifesting itself in ways. I, I don't know. So politically, I think his future is somewhat cloudy, potentially in jeopardy, and then physically, emotionally, again, how do you diagnose from a picture in an internet article? I don't know, but it just, it gave me pause for the first time. You know, if I would have seen this sort of stuff in February, I would have completely discounted it. Now, maybe not so much. So, yeah, I, I how will it play out? Who knows? But I, I, I think he's in a lot more jeopardy today than he was four months ago. Um, since you are a betting man, if you had to wager today, will he survive this? What would your wager be? Well, what's the over/under on I time? Know. I don't you gotta, know. You got to put it down there. What do you mean? I don't even know six what that means. Months, six. Well, let's say the over/under is six months. Is he going to be gone in six months before or after, or three months, or two years? I know, two years, I, I think he's gone. Three six, months, six, I don't think so. Six months? Six months, I think, is, is a is a really good spot. Um, so what is it now? It's May. That's in December, November, December. Um, I think I would take long shot odds on that. I mean, I wouldn't bet my retirement on it, but I think I would wager – that there's a reasonable 25, 30, 40% chance maybe. That's pretty high, 40%. 25% chance he's not there in six months. Two years, I think the chances are pretty high he won't be there. But six months, you would say 25%, you would begin to look at that. I think so, right. yeah. All right, All right. Um, on to uh, Ward Carroll's fine interview with uh, Representative Elaine Luria. Uh, first question that he asks her, uh, and there's three segments that we'll, we'll, I, I sent to everybody. The first one is on shipbuilding and the 2023 budget. So your thoughts on that segment, Will? Um, you know, Luria lays, lays out an interesting case about the shipbuilding plan that the Navy produced. She said they produced three plans, which means they really don't have any plan. Right. Um, and 
a couple things came to mind for me. First, you got to understand who Rep. Lori is, right? She's a nuclear engineer, went through the nuclear power program, uh, and into the surface community. And so she's a numbers person. And a, a not insignificant amount of combat is associated with numbers. Um, but then there's other factors as well. And, you know, she reduces the argument to the number of, uh, I think, VLS, vertical launch systems. Cells, yeah, VLS vertical cells. Right? Vertical launch that's, cells. That's what she talks about. And she talks about that, right, that number is going to come down by 1,600 cells, right, which would be launch platforms, not ships, but the platform that goes onto the ship that launches, right? Um, they, they will come down by 1,600 of those during what is being referenced as the Davidson window. Yeah, and and while that math is interesting, to me it's only a data point because we're not going to line up our vertical launch cells versus their targets and then just turn it into a math problem. Okay, we have we have 4,000 launch cells and we can launch X number of missiles and those we expect this percentage of hits and that'll destroy that many targets. You know, that completely takes away the idea of combined arms. Um, you know, in the entire, she didn't talk about two, I think, relatively important things throughout the entire interview. Number one, naval aviation. So where does naval aviation apply in any of this? And that's interesting because Ward Carroll's an F-14 guy. Right. He never never pushes her on it. Um, what are the other two words that she never says? Marine Corps. Marine Corps. When she says the Navy, she doesn't mean the Department of the Navy. She means gray-hulled ships. Right. And so... Uh, again, I think the on a very narrow look at strictly shipbuilding, um, her criticism is good. I mean, the Navy, uh, the Navy can't produce a plan, right? They don't want to be accountable to a plan, so they throw three things up against the wall, and she says one of them is obviously a throwaway. Um, so then how are people in Congress supposed to approach this? If the Navy doesn't even know what they want to do, how is Congress going to do it? I think that's compelling. Right. I think her math problem is compelling because it reduces certain things um, for people to understand who couldn't tell the difference between an aircraft carrier and a tugboat. You know, right. she, uh, she, she gives them some math there. It would have been better if Carol... Uh, or if she would have just said, as a component of a naval campaign, these vertical launch cells, this naval aviation, this cyber, this space, this Marine Corps, here's how it fits together. And if we lose this many launch cells, that means that we should be expanding our capability in these other areas. So the other thing I would say is, um, you know, she talked about the Navy decommissioning ships and how Congress plussed them up by $29 billion to do something. And, and, and here's where the debate gets lost. $29 billion. I, I didn't look at the Navy budget this year, but I got a feeling the Navy budget, maybe 
150, 160 billion, something like that. If the DOD is 700, the Navy's got to be 150, I would say. So we're going to give $40 billion to Ukraine. What would $40 billion do to the Navy? We're going to put $40 billion into a sideshow. $40 billion into a sideshow. As opposed to ensuring in the Davidson window, is that what they call it? Yeah, that's what, that's what it's being referred to as. And again, yeah. she makes that point about the budget in that, you know, we do this top down and it's not a strategy driven thing. She said if it was strategy driven and China is the pacing threat, then you would expect the Navy and the Air Force budgets, right, right. to expand the Army to stay, to, to say, to stay, you know, static yeah. for this, inflation. And this... And the, and and the whole thing with Ukraine to me sort of reinforces her argument, though. Right. We don't have a strategy, so we think we have an opportunity with Russia, who is, you know, there's another word, the pacing threat. When did that become a term of art? I don't right? know. I the first time I, I spent ever, I heard twenty and it was a half years associated never heard the word pacing threat. Yeah, the first time I ever heard it, I heard it associated with China. What is that? Yeah. What is the payment? Is it the pace horse? So, yeah. So if they're the ones that we should be focused on, um, I think strategy would tell you that if that is your most capable and most dangerous adversary, then that's what you devote the absolute lion's share of your resources to ensure that you can deter, defend, whatever, before you start getting off into other adventures. And and $40 billion, you know, uh, we'll say it again, if the defense budget's 70, then $40 billion is what? Six, seven percent. We could be spending six or, more, six or seven more percent of defense budget focused on a threat that we've identified for the last several years as the pacing threat, et cetera, um, instead of putting it into a sideshow, um, is $40 billion, what does $40 billion do for Ukraine? Does it defeat Russia? Eh, probably not. Does it ensure the survival of Ukraine? I don't know. Someone should give us that math. What's it going to take to defeat him? What's it going to take Ukraine to survive Below what threshold does Ukraine disappear off the face of the earth? And then what does that matter to us? Because $40 billion would have a significant impact on shipbuilding today for what in theory is the pacing threat. So, Um, The second segment um, that I sent you deals with strategy, right? Um, And uh, she talks about uh, going back and watching video of Secretary Lehman during the Reagan years uh, when the Navy was going to 600 ships. Um, and uh, I thought that interesting and, and that the way strategy should work, you know, there is a strategy, right? Then we understand what the combatant commanders need and that informs service chiefs, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, your thoughts on the segment on on strategy? Yeah, and, the, and, and the, that quote to quote her, nothing is ever presented to Congress as this is the strategy, and this is where this fits fits into the strategy. Yeah. So item one, that that's where the first note I took. I found my notes, by the way. The first note I took was 
she talks about the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. She doesn't talk about the Marine Corps. Or the Space, so, or, or the space Force. Yeah. So for all of the all of the the people out there, and this is getting some play in areas I see that, you know, the CNO and the Commandant testified, and there's there's no daylight between the services. Well, you know, one of the few people that actually talk about strategy and things from Congress doesn't even bear to mention the Marine Corps. Um, so there may be some daylight there. Right. Um, you know, this strategy continuum, strategy to requirements to POM, program objective memorandum, which is sort of like a five-year budget and then budget. And uh, so if there's no strategy continuum and it's never presented to Congress in that way, well, I would say a couple of things to that. Um, don't be a victim. I mean, you represent a district that's pretty significant. It's got all of Norfolk in it. You're in the majority party in the Hask, and someone of your party also occupies the White House. So if they're not presenting things that you want presented, stand up on your desk and demand it. Um, don't go to Ward Carroll in some offbeat interview session and talk about how they're not giving you what you want. Tell them. Get together with your colleagues. Yeah, you can do it bipartisan or find someone in the Senate who also might happen to agree with you. Tell them, hey, we're not voting for the defense bill. So you jackasses come in here, strategy, requirements, POM, budget. It's not that hard. I mean, those idiot Republicans under that wacko Reagan were able to do it 40 years ago. And you guys can't do it today? So that that's sort of what I took away from that. It's all a great class and theory, um, but Ward Carroll can't do anything about it. You and I can't do anything about it. Rep Luria is the only one that can do something about it, and she seems to want to talk about it and not do it. So that's what I got out of the whole strategy session there. Got it. Two things. One, when she thinks China, she doesn't think, the wealth of resources across the continuum that the country is going to apply, not even just in defense. Uh, and then she doesn't seem to be accountable herself to make things happen. All right, let's talk about authority. And, and, and in authority, she talks about, um, I can't remember the name of the is it an, the assistant secretary of defense. What's her name? Sally. What's her name? I can't. Oh, um, what is she? She writes about integrated um, integrated deterrence. I think she, or integrated defense, and that is all the elements of national power. And then ultimately, uh, her thesis is: if you use all the elements of national power, you can actually cut the Department of Defense hard power. Um, and so, I'm sorry because I don't I don't remember that from that part of it. Okay, so my um, apologies. But she has uh, it's it's an interesting um, discussion about authority in that if you're if you're seeking to do deterrence by denial, where does the authority come from? Where is the trigger line? Because that authority lies with Congress, and so 
your strategy doesn't line up, there is no authority to implement the strategy that you're espousing here in these hearings. Yeah, I w- a couple of things I would say on that. She she rightly says that there does not appear to be a sense of urgency. Right. Uh, and uh, and that is when she know, contrasts what uh, the various admirals that have led Indo-PACOM and the chairman, in this case, General Milley. Yeah, um, she she points right at General Milley. Yeah. And she quotes uh, either Davidson or Acolino saying that that China has, you know, we have assessed that China by 2027 and that Acolino said it in testimony and the chairman says, well, he said they would have the capability. And she said, no, that's not really what he said. They went back and forth on that a little bit. Then she said that the president has not met with Indo-PACOM theater commander. um, And the, the, I'm not sure if the president uh, or the SECDEF or if the chairman has said, well, I think it was either the president or SECDEF that said something or co- something's come out of the White House where he's comfortable with the advice he's getting via the chairman. Well, if she's so hard about getting an Acolino meeting, again, you're in the majority party and the president is a member of your party uh, and you seem to be someone who's got a voice on defense just ask that question straight up. Uh, and then the last thing about the authorities, you know, it's an interesting discussion, but I think it's really almost naive. She says, we can't introduce forces when conflict is imminent. Says who? Well, it's under the war powers. Well, no, um, that I, I believe basically the, 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 um, standing sort of thought about the Wars Act, War Powers Act from the executive branch is that that really doesn't apply. We go along with it to a certain way, but the president's not going to be constrained. And I think the president, you know, if it was obvious, if China massed um, their force in an area where it's obvious and we have other intelligence indicators that they were going to go to Taiwan and the president said it's within our national interests uh, that he would just go ahead and introduce more forces into that theater um, and put it on Congress to stop him. And uh, if a president had made that decision, figured out that's what they wanted to do, um, listen, I'm not saying it's a good thing by any stretch, but the idea that a Democratic Congress would stop him I think it's goofy, right? Is she gonna is she gonna stand up and say you can't do that? And what are you gonna do? Introduce articles of impeachment against the president, or are you gonna zero out? So 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 when you talk about a trigger line in in this, right? You talk about a trigger line in in events that would surround Taiwan. Okay, and I think uh, the 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 longer thesis is this whole idea of of deterrence by denial, strategic ambiguity, right, and then the authority that goes with that is incongruent, yeah. and th- and that it needs to be clarified. Yeah, I I don't I don't disagree that it's incongruent. And and I would say this I I don't know who and, and they 
Um, Ward Carroll asks her about um, the assistant secretary of defense and this idea of integrated power. I'm thinking the ones I can think of is like Hicks. Yes, maybe. her. Yeah. Is she the DepSec Def now? I don't even know. Um, now we're all Googling at the rapid rate. Yeah, exactly. Her name is like Kath Hicks. Okay, there you go. That's Unfortunately, that's from a lot of time in the freaking building. Dr. Um, Kathleen H. Hicks, Deputy Secretary of Defense. And anyway, she sounds like, Representative Luria sounds like she is adamantly opposed to the things that uh, Dr. Hicks espouses. Okay, and that is the whole this whole idea of integrated um, defense. Um, this whole idea of you can you you don't need it if you use those other elements of power. You don't need a Department of Defense funded to the level that you 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 are funding it. And you hear Representative Lurie saying, "Oh no, we need to get closer to the Reagan era, you know, funding uh, if 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 we're going to do this." And that is somewhere between five and six percent of GDP. And so, uh, so anyway, um, it sounds like she um, is out of step with the Democratic administration um, that is in power today in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that would have a lot more um, sort of philosophical, intellectual credibility with me if she was a representative from Nebraska, right? The fact that she's a representative from Norfolk, um, she better be saying words like that if you're the representative from Norfolk. Uh, so, is that a is that a pork barreling sort of view of the world, uh, or is it a truly thoughtful, strategic view of the world? I mean, I believe peace through strength is proven throughout history. So I, I, I don't doubt that. Um, I, I, and again, I would say I, I, I don't want to come off as too much of a fan of hers, but I mean, I, I pay attention to this stuff. The most thoughtful discussions I've heard about this stuff come out of her mouth. Now, maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I, I don't, my lens is too narrow, but I, but I watch, I listen. I'm not looking for her. And again, I played the at the start of the, the the program the other day. I played what got her on my radar, and that was her um, her asking uh, Lieutenant General, or I think it was Lieutenant General at the time, Eric Smith, where did Force Design 2030 come from? Was this a requirement from a co- combatant commander? You know, was this something that you were asked to produce? Where did this thing come from? She's the only person I've ever seen in public go down that road with anybody of, of substance. Yeah. I, I, and, right. And, so, I mean, I, I, I mean, to me, she's I, I, I don't I wish there was a, a somebody else I could see. And these conversations were happening on a more regular basis. I just don't see it. Yeah, I, I sort of have a schizophrenic view of her, I think, because I I, I agree with you on on the hardware strategy sort of things, um, I don't find a lot of other people in Congress remotely interesting or compelling. Um, mm-hmm. I, I disagree with her, again, 
you know, she doesn't, she is narrowly educated in the Navy, right? She's a surface ship person in the Navy. Uh, And then the other part of her politics, I just find repugnant, you know, she's, she's as far left as anybody out there. And all of that stuff should somehow fit together. Um, You know, so that's, and, and, and I'm willing to say I could be colored uh, by my view of her other politics, right. which I just find, you know, horrific. Right. Um, but, you know, on the defense side of it, it, she makes a lot of very good points. And congressional testimony is bad as well for this because it's a five-minute session in the Hask. So you don't really get to have a thoughtful conversation. I would hope behind closed doors when she's got Gilday and the commandant and, uh, you know, the sec def in there, there's a much wider ranging discussion that encompasses these other areas, uh, that contribute to strategy. Um, you know, that bring in all elements of military as well as other power that the country has, but you don't see that, and it didn't come out in the interview, and it's not in the article uh, in that SIMSEC thing either. It's a very narrow hardware, uh, this many launchers, right. yada, yada, yada. And and maybe, um, you know, she may have the entire spectrum, but she says, if I'm going to get any traction, I might be able to get it on the shipbuilding thing if I get on it and stay on it. And, and that may be her strategy uh, as well. Don't know. Got it. I'll give some benefit of the doubt. Got it. Got it. That's a big. Um, you know, I, that's a big stretch for me, right there. I know. I know. Um, I, I, a final question for you: the whole idea of strategy, right, uh, to budget. Um, I think that's probably one of the most disturbing things about the interview. Um, and when you look at that. I'm curious about what you see is, and you've been, and you've lived in that part of the world. Um, your thoughts on it? Yeah. First I, it's uh, the, the theory is simple, right? The execution is hard. And a lot of that is because of uh, our political system uh, and how we do business. You know, Reagan came in and, um, Eight years, he had a Republican Congress, I want to say for two of that, had a Republican Senate, not a, not a Republican House. Uh, you had the, the party, there was much more, m- many more people in the middle that crossed over. It wasn't nearly as partisan. Right. Um, and he did it not only militarily, but he did it diplomatically uh, as well. And so he had a certain amount of continuity and and the president was focused on it. Um, and I think a lot of Reagan's critics within the conservative side and the Republican Party is that he didn't do some of the other things that they would have liked him to do. But he was sort of focused on economy and Soviet Union. And so you think of our politics recently um, between... Uh, the war on terror, uh, 
and then financial crisis 2007-2008. The president, uh, President Obama, comes in and focuses on nothing associated with defense. Uh, Then we have a tumultuous election in 2016, where the opposition party immediately labels themselves a resistance uh, to the election in 2020. So politically, it's sort of hard to have strategy that's overarching, that you identify requirements and then have sort of a, a consensus on Um, where the budget should be. And then the second part of it is, um, I'm trying to think what the system was. It could have been B1 or B2. You know, in the 80s, the defense world figured out the best way to get the thing bought was to spread it out into as many congressional districts because congressmen will vote for something that spends money in their district strategy be damned and uh so they know and administrations understand it that as well so they appeal instead of strategy requirement on down they go budget here's how that money's getting filtered through and it's uh you know it's a terrible system it just happens to be the best one in the world but it's still terrible the way it works and it offends academics and strategists and everybody else uh because it is ugly well but i I will tell you i will tell you what will i mean the navy it's producing i mean it's not a good product no it's horrible it's an absolutely terrible product right Right. now um but you know think about i don't you know the united states emerges sort of as a world power in world war one um, we we didn't have a strategy requirements. Maybe the shipbuilding in 1940, the 3840 was a was an identification that we need. We had certain requirements, and we were voting to it. But look, the draft only got through by one vote. Some of those shipbuilding plans got through very very narrowly. Uh, we had a strategy. Uh, I would say in the Cold War, we built up the Air Force, we built up the Triad tremendously. But I mean, you remember the 70s, there was a nuclear disarmament movement, there was all those things. Um, Reagan, I think we had that strategy in place that was absolutely vilified and ridiculed by a significant part of the political uh, spectrum, you know, Star Wars. Um, right. And then we've muddled uh, from the fall of the Berlin Wall till today. That's 30 years where we just sort of muddled. And remember, you know, the, in the debate, uh, Obama makes fun of Romney because Romney says Russia is a threat. Hey, you know, the, the 80s called. They, they want their foreign policy back. Um, we, we had a theory with China that if we make them rich, then they won't want to fight us and that theory proved out to be uh terrible on both things because it's making us poor and they still appear to be fairly belligerent so while the again the theory strategy requirement palm budget it makes sense it's very rarely been executed uh for a whole lot of reasons um and 
I would I would suggest that people like Representative Loria are as much of the problem as anything else. There's going to be certain. I, but again, that se- that seems to be that seems to be extremely unfair because she's the only one talking about it. She talks again on that, but is she someone that meets people in the middle on issues? She's not meeting anyone in the middle on issues. You know, she's an extremist, just like they all are up there. Yeah, I don't want to. I, but a I wide wanna, variety of issues. Yeah, I don't, that's not what my purpose was in talking. I, about I know, this. I know. I'm just, I'm just saying. As I look at it, to build that consensus, you got to have more people that are willing to talk about more things, and and give and take on a wider variety of issues to build credibility with each other. And when I say she's part of the problem, hey, there's people across the spectrum that are exactly part of that problem that would never compromise uh, on a significant number of things because those people on the other side, that comes from the right and the left. Um, But to get that consensus on defense, you got to be able to build consensus or or at least compromise on other things. Uh, Reagan was able to do it, right? He had, he had a democratic controlled house his entire time and democratic controlled Senate. I think six out of the eight years that he was president. Um, so, so, so when we talk about um, the ability to build ships, uh, the continuing resolution problems, all uh, this stuff, yeah, brutal. all this stuff that has been absolutely horrible for the defense budget. Um, I mean, will you have uh, again? I don't know if he said it as Secretary Mattis or as General Mattis or when he was retired. You know, and he said there is no foe on the planet that that has done as much damage to the Department of Defense. A sequestration. That's general. That's General Mattis' quote. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, and I, she, she had part of her discussion in there was uh, about the industrial base and our ability to build. I think two DDGs a year, and we're yeah. building one DDG a year. Right. Um, and you know, we we need to go back. Politics matters. I mean, we put Ray Mabus in charge of the Department of the Navy. And I think that's really when that LCS uh, got pushed. And then Bob Work was was the uh, undersecretary, and they were justifying LCS. And I think that I, you look at that thing and you say, you have got to be kidding me. And that gutted Navy shipbuilding and focus for years. And we're basically just throwing those things away as worthless. Right. And, and they're – that was one where it couldn't get past the second question. Manning, maintenance, uh, capability. Uh, and so we dug ourselves a big hole. Uh, you know, Admiral Gilday is in this divest to invest. And Lurie says we never seem to get to the investment phase. Uh, I don't, when it, when it comes to hardware, um, I, I don't want to be in Gilday's shoes. Her arguments are compelling that uh, we need platforms out there and the people that are saying, well, you know, we got to have the maintenance capability, et cetera. Okay. Then God damn it. Build it. Well, build it. But again, I, if I, you don't, I, I you're said, never going to get there. I said this on Friday, but there, there's an, uh, I saw an article in USNI news that was covering some of the budget hearings and the general accounting office when asked about the Navy's estimates to overhaul, I want to say there are three or four, dry dock facilities in the United States in CONUS 
they described the Navy's cost estimates as wildly inaccurate. There was, <laughs> exactly. And you, and you read it and you're like, this is an accountant. There's no uh, dollar figure that adjusts for inflation. There's no dollar figure in the estimate that adjusts for environmental impact. These dry dock facilities are over 100 years old, all three of them. And you're sitting there reading it, and you're like, I mean, can does it, can the Navy do anything right? Yeah, I, you know, when you just, have a ship basically burned to the waterline at the pier, right. what credibility? Uh, and... Yeah, I was, and then the, I the investigation even worse reveals, right, that your your people were afraid to go fight the fire, and you, yeah. you read the investigation and you just uh... yeah, and I, I I sort of wedged that in because there's been a discussion on LinkedIn, uh, the aide to the CNO published, you know, a, a piece about the recent testimony with the SecNav, the CNO, and the Commandant about how some of the representatives asked questions and then listened and how great uh, the SecNav and the CNO and the Commandant were in response and talking about material readiness is important and quality over quantity. And I'm like, what leg, are, what leg is the CNO and the SecNav standing on? Um, if you recognize those things as being important, then... What have you done? Because under your watch, there's just been nothing but ineptitude, it appears to me. No, uh, that's, that's that's the emperor's new clothes stuff, right? Yeah. And and, uh, and, and again, I mean, and, and here's a question for you. What kind of Marine Corps is, is General Berger, the current commandant, going to deliver to the next commandant? Uh, and, and so I will... Uh, I'm not close to the Marine Corps now, right? right. I, I have, I'm trying to think the last time I saw an active duty unit. It's been a long time. And I don't talk to a lot of people on active duty. And I, I try, and from my seat way out here in the stands, um, to see and think through it. Um, the, the commentary that I see in social media about force design gives me great pause. Uh, but again, Marine, and, Marine Corps has divested, right? The Navy has pushed back, pushed back once again on the LCS, right? It, it wasn't in their ship budget. Right. Right. And uh, they pushed back on the, and I think Congress said a minimum of 31 amphib, right? Yeah. Na Navy wanted to do 26. And so you, you consistently see this narrative of Marine Corps, not so much. And and I, so I, so we so even the Marine Corps, the divest piece, uh, and then General Heckle just what two weeks ago, came out and said, yeah, we couldn't get there. Yeah, well, and you, you your question is what what is the Marine Corps does does this commandant deliver to the next? Well, this commandant has said we can get rid of these tank battalions, these tube artillery battalions, and we can still do everything that we were supposed to do. And again, I just I go back to algebra. If your current capability is X and you're going to divest Y, what you're saying is X minus Y equals X. So you're saying that that all the things we divest have no capability, and it's just hard for me to right. 
to see that. And then to extend that logic further, if we're not building a Marine Corps strictly for the China threat, but it's still a worldwide deployable force and readiness across a range of military operations, and we don't need heavy armor, so we're saying you don't need heavy armor across a range of military operations, then why does the Army have heavy armor? It just seems bizarre to me. They don't, right? We've they, determined. They didn't get the memo. They don't have the same mission. They're not charged with the same things. Um, but we say we can fight across the range of military operations. And so, oh, well, if we need armor, we're going to get it from the Army. So yeah, they must. No, it, just, it just, again, so now, now you're the next commandant that's handed this. Uh, well, I don't know what kind of Marine Corps. He's going to hand over to the next commandant. I don't know. Um, I, I, uh, it will, that, well, let me tell you, what would be accurate? It would be a greatly reduced in capability Marine Corps with plans, right, as yet unfunded for the future. That and I, again, I think you're absolutely right. I think with, if you don't say this, you're not being accurate. With a big question mark about whether or not you can operate across the range of military operations. Because the thing that people that support Force Design 2030 are fond of saying is that the nature of war has changed. The nature of war has never changed. And I would exactly. I see that and I recoil and say, just read something that deals with the whole, you know, armor, anti-armor, you know. How many times that's been said? The tank is uh, dead, this is dead, until, oh, all of a sudden somebody is finds a way to jam or disrupt a guidance system or or conceal its, itself or whatnot. Then all of a sudden, oh, not a bad thing to have. And we've seen this spiral over and over again. And so um, I, th I think that's a fair assessment and so well anyway. the nature of wars you know the nature of war has not changed since the first caveman hit the other one with a rod um i think you need to do a little bit more reading my friend yeah you know here's a number for you record budget this year about 48 billion 48 billion times are getting tough Give uh, us we're shipping we're shipping a marine corps to ukraine that's what we say we're doing with forty billion, right. or you know, eighty percent of a Marine Corps. At what point, when things get squeezed, when interest rates that that the government's got to pay on the long bond go from whatever it is two point two to six and a half percent, and debt service goes from I don't know three hundred billion to a trillion dollars a year. And you're saying, well, we're going to have the, we're going to get this capability by 2035. At what point does that 50 billion dollars just and who up there on the hill, Rep. Luria, is not going to stand in front of that tidal wave and say, no, we have to have a Marine Corps. If it comes down to a Marine Corps or 2,000 more vertical launch cells, you know. That, that is the potential jeopardy that we could be in.
um, I think it'd be a huge loss and not because I'd like to go to the parade and eighth and I and, you know, reunions and all that crap. It's because I think having a Marine Corps has been pretty good for the defense of the nation. Um, and the other thing we yeah, do but is again, not a, correct, as yeah, we make Marines. But historically, if it doesn't operate, and this is the argument, right? If it doesn't operate across the range of military operations, if it can't show its utility to the nation on a regular basis, then you... Why bother? Exactly. Why bother? All right. So, uh, what are you reading? I'm, I'm reading this uh, book down, Peter the Great, by Robert Massey. Um, so... You know this whole Russia thing. I've I've tried not to get overly into it. Yeah, me, um, me neither. The guy is a he's a really good author. He writes very nice narrative history uh, that's also well footnoted, and he brings different things in. Um, so he's talking about the time period now, around seventeen hundred or so, when Peter the Great uh, is about to embark on a big war with Sweden and Massey brings in who all these different rulers were and what the politics were. And uh, it provides some insight into, as good history does, it provides some insight into why things are today the way they are. If you understand a little more of the history, it's a little bit easier to anal- analyze why people think the way they do and act the way they do, etc. So I guess he's got a, a four-part series. I read Catherine the Great, which is number two. This is number one. And then I think he does two books on the Romanovs later, which I'll eventually get to, you know, the only, a downside of this is they're, they're like eight or 900 pages a piece. Um, but they're very good reading. So that's what I'm reading. Got it. All right, William, first of all, thank you for doing this. Um, uh, congratulations on that is all your children are now married, right? All married, all married and uh, all of them to great people. Yeah. Couldn't be happier. No, that's uh, congratulations to you and Carrie and and uh, and your entire family. Thank oh, you. No, I didn't. I got to tell you the story too. Yeah. So, in Philadelphia, rains all day Friday. Right. Rains all day Saturday. Yeah. Miserable. Sunday, cold, blustery, and the wind dies down in the afternoon. So they say, "I oh, will do the ceremony outside," but it's overcast and it's not really now it's not very nice and literally when they say i do and face the audience the sun comes out and i said you know she pushed the clouds out of the way so her baby boy would have a little sunshine on his wedding there you go absolutely felt it so yeah great family event awesome congratulations thank you all right uh more of auburn radio coming up next that'll do it on a monday We will be back Wednesday. My thanks to Will for coming on today and talking about that. The other thing I'd point out to you is Mark Kansian. And the Center for Strategic and International Studies is doing an event today starts at 10 o'clock 
Pacific time. If you go to the CSIS, actually, I'll put the link in this uh, in this post. Yeah. It's about Force Design 2030. On the panel will be a guy named Dove, D-O-V, Dov, Zakhan, former Secretary of Defense Comptroller, Robert Work, former Deputy Secretary of Defense, General Anthony Zinni, General P.K. Van Riper, who will be moderated by Colonel Mark Kansian, United States Marine Corps retired. So I'll put that link in if you care to uh, check that out. Um, again, historical times we're living in. Yeah. And I guess <clears throat> the question is, what does winning the peace look like in the case of Ukraine versus Russia? And I, as I said before, I'll say it again. I don't know what the classified assessment is. But whatever it is, it's not good for Russia. I can tell you that. Because <clears throat> European nations are acting completely unafraid of them. So, we shall see. On that note, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara, the Submarine Radio. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Wednesday. Maybe we'll, we'll have Mark Kansian. See if he'll come on. And report what he found. Yeah. See ya. <laughs>